Hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be delving into the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatian church. That would be the book of Galatians. We've made it to chapter five, and I thank you for joining us today as we begin to look at God's word. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we dig into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. The greatest of those blessings being the sacrifice of Christ, his atoning work on the cross, the promise of salvation and right relationship with you through his work and not our own. Lord, you have given us the gift of salvation and your spirit living in us. We rejoice in that. Father, help us to live in that reality to live out that truth in our lives, that we would not fall into the trap that we see taking place here in the book of Galatians, where so many were being held captive by this idea that they had to do and to, to adhere to the rules, the laws. Lord, help us to find our peace, our joy, our hope in you and you alone. And Father, as we turn our hearts and our attention to your word, speak to us by your spirit. Speak to our hearts that we may hear your voice, that we may be convicted of our sin, that we would reach that point of repenting, of turning to you, seeking forgiveness and restoration. And Father, help us to hear your voice that we may follow you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what we've already seen in the book of Galatians still holds true. Paul is dealing with this group of what come to be known as Judaizers that have come into the Galatian churches, and they are advocating that to be a good follower of Christ, to be a Christian, you had to be a good Jew. You had to be observant of the laws, rules, festivals, traditions of Judaism before you could be acceptable as a good Christian. And well, it's just not true, but it's what they were advocating. And Paul is saying, no, we've got freedom through Christ. We are governed by the spirit, not the law. Don't make yourselves slaves again to your sin because the law can't save you. All it can do is condemn you as a sinner. And so that's the groundwork behind everything that's going on. Now, as we get to the fifth chapter, Paul begins to speak very clear. He's been talking in previous chapters about uh, being in slavery to the law and and all that's involved in that and kind of drew from from scripture and drew from their their current world in the previous chapters. These um, explanations dealing with a will and dealing with... uh, the free child versus the slave child, and which has inheritance rights, sonship rights, if you will, and all of these things. Well, now when we get to chapter five, and really it spills over into chapter six, but today we're just covering chapter five, we get to this idea of what freedom in Christ is and what it means. And we've had plenty of discussion on the law. Now we're going to talk about freedom. And there's a beautiful passage of scripture in here where we're going to see a contrast 
between the world or the law and the freedom of Christ. And we'll get to that. But let's let's dig in now with the beginning of chapter 5. Paul says this, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now that's kind of a summation of the argument he's been laying out already, that you make yourself a slave to the law when you try to live by the law, but we have been set free from the law. We are free in Christ. So now we're going to talk about just what it means to be justified by our faith and how it plays out, starting in verse 2. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. So he's making it clear who's talking to him. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Now, Paul is actually playing with words a little bit there, uh, the whole circumcision and and been cut off bit. But um, if you don't understand that, you're welcome to look it up. What's really going on here is Paul is making it abundantly clear because they're saying, well, there's certain things you have to do to be aligned with Judaism to be a good Christian. And one of them, in this case, is circumcision. And Paul's saying, no, you don't get to dabble in it. You know, it's not, well, I'm going to take this part of the law and follow it, but then I'm going to trust in Christ for the rest. It's not do everything you can and God will make up the difference type theology, which which actually is what the uh, LDS church, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or what we commonly call Mormons, uh, that's what they advocate. You do everything you can, and God will make up the difference. That's not what Scripture says. That is not what Paul is proclaiming here. He's saying, look, if you're going to say it's any part the law, then you're under the whole law. And if you're saying, I'm going to be made right with God by what I do under the law, even if it's just a part of the law, then Christ is of no use to you. The gift of grace found in Christ, that right standing with God that Christ gives to you, you are, in effect, rejecting and taking on the burden of the law. And so Paul's very stern about this. He said, if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. It goes on, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God has promised to us. So you've got that contrast, righteousness that you attempt to get by keeping the law, which you will fail, or we can live by the Spirit and eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God has promised to us. Now, that brings us to a fundamental question. Can we trust God? Actually, that's not a fundamental question. The answer to that is blatantly yes. Yes. 
do we trust God? That becomes the pressing question. Because when we start trying to do even part of our salvation on our own instead of trusting in him, then the truth is we don't trust him. Oh, we trust him for some of it. Uh, In seminary, we learn this concept in theology called God of the Gap. And unfortunately, it's what many people practice in their theology. And I know most people are going, I don't practice theology. But yeah, you do. What you believe about God. Most people want to relegate God to the gaps in their life, to those things they can't explain or those those things they can't handle or those things they acknowledge are out of their power or they just don't know about. Well, that's that's the God area. But the rest of their life, they want to run. I can choose this. I can do this. I can handle this. I can make these decisions, these determinations, so on and so forth. And so we wind up with a God of our own creation that we worship that is simply a God of the gaps. That's not really God. The true God is the God of everything. And when we trust in his grace and his mercy, when we truly place our faith in him and quit trying to make up the gaps with him and understand we're inadequate for all of it, that if you want a God of the gap that's real, then everything's a gap. It becomes a challenge to us. Do we truly trust God completely for our salvation? Or do we feel we need to do more? Something we should struggle with. Again, let's start back in five. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. And then in verse 6, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. In other words, when our faith is rooted in Christ, when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, then there's no benefit to standing against or under the law. It's not about the law anymore. It becomes about Christ, all about Christ. So he says there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. Then he says what is important is faith expressing itself in love. That is faith in Christ, expressing itself in love. Our faith in God plays itself out in our lives in one way, love. Remember when Jesus was questioned about what the greatest commandment was. He starts with the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength but then immediately ties another to it out of Leviticus, says the second is like unto it. Sorry, I slipped into King James there. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He talks about how in these two, all the law and the prophets hang. In other words, if you get the living out love, living out your faith in God through love, 
then it's going to put you in right standing with God. You're going to want to please him, follow him. And you're going to want to show his love to those around you. You'll cover the vertical and the horizontal in that. That is fundamentally important in the Christian faith. And it's not about what we stand for or against. It's not about what rules we say are, are no longer in effect or what rules we try to live under, because we're not supposed to be paying attention to that anyway. We're supposed to be focused on God and our relationship with Him and living out that relationship to the people around us. And what that looks like very simply is faith expressing itself in love. Well, now in verse 7, Paul shifts gears a little bit, and he starts talking about a law-oriented gospel instead of the gospel of faith, of God's grace. Now, what's that look like? Well, first off, he reminds the Galatians of where they started, and he commends them. He says, you were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Now, there seems to be indication that that may have been a common phrase of the day that, you know, uh, somebody would use it as an explanation for things or or to explain things. It just a little bit goes a long way is how we might say it today. But, uh, you know, they understood from their daily life how a little bit of yeast would work its way through and affect the whole dough. And they also understood the idea of a race. The Roman Empire was was fascinated, as were the Greeks before them, with competitions, physical prowess and competitions. So they, they understood the idea of a race and winning a race and not being able to win a race if you're being held back, being encumbered in some way. And so Paul saying, you know, who is holding you back from the truth? Well, it's certainly not God, and points out God's the one that's calling them the freedom but instead warning that this false teaching is like a little bit of yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. He said, I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Now, does Paul know who he is? We don't know. He may, and just deem it not worthy of mentioning name or giving credit to. Uh, It may be that Paul's more concerned about the false teaching than the individual anyway. So he wants to focus on the real problem, and that is that the believers, the Galatian church, were turning their back on faith in Christ and trying to trust in the law for salvation, which is useless. He goes on in 11 and says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say that I do. Now, why why does he say that? If I were still preaching, when he was a zealous Jew, that is what he preached, and he persecuted Christians. He says, if I were still preaching that, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? 
So, you know, if this false teacher is coming in and he's teaching adherence to the law and says, but this is what Paul's teaching. Paul's going, if that's really what I was teaching, why are the Jews persecuting me? They would like what I'm teaching because it's what I used to teach, but that's not happening anymore. So he's just pointing out the falsehood of this. He goes on, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. We have become too accustomed to the cross. We see it in churches. We see it in artwork. We see it, you know, it, it inundates everything. It's become a cultural symbol. But understand, the first century, the cross of Christ was scandalous. Christians didn't even use it as a symbol for Christianity. They used a, a fish, ichthus, which was an acronym about Christ being the Son of God. But that was the, the message they used for one another and to identify, not the cross. The cross at this point was still a scandalous, shameful, and gruesome Roman tool of execution and control. It was not something that was looked on favorably. And people that were crucified were considered the worst of the criminals. They were shunned by society. Uh, not looked up to. So for Christianity, and in this case for Paul, to be proclaiming a gospel that is centered on the cross of Christ, which it is, the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. It's the core of our gospel. It is the transaction that made us right with God. Without it, we would have no hope. But to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to proclaim the cross of Christ as being the foundation of our salvation was crazy. You're taking this most shameful thing and claiming that's the source of the power. If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. Everybody'd be happy with me, is what he's saying. Verse 12, I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Um, this is a nice rendering of this passage. Paul is being a little bit sarcastic here and kind of harsh. He's basically saying, hey, these guys that are advocating circumcision, which he refers to as mutilation of the flesh, claiming that mutilating the flesh would make you right with God, which wasn't just a Jewish thing. There were many of the pagan cults that adherents would mutilate their flesh to appease their gods. But he's saying, I wish these, that these troublemakers that want to come in and, and want you to mutilate yourself, I wish they would just go ahead and mutilate themselves. And that's a, a kind way of phrasing. Instead of circumcision, I wish they just go ahead and cut everything off of themselves. Uh, that's harsh. But his point there is, and it's also a play on words, cut themselves off could also mean cut themselves off from the fellowship of Israel, from the, from the body of believers, because eunuchs, 
which is what that would be, uh, eunuchs were not allowed to be part of the body of Israel. So Paul's saying, if you're going to rely on this mutilation of the flesh to make you right with God, which it doesn't, then you might as well go the whole way and then not even be a part of the family, um, not a part of the family of Israel, because you don't qualify anymore. He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm tired of it. I want them to just, you know, go all the way if they're going any other way. Just be done with it. And so that was that was pretty stern, pretty harsh on Paul's part. But it's not too harsh given the situation. These people are literally leading the Galatian people away from the saving gospel of Christ. It deserves harsh confrontation. Now we get to a new section, and this is a section that will carry over into chapter 6, so we won't finish the whole thought today, but we'll start it. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 5, Paul begins to talk about this idea of love. We saw it back in verse, what was it, verse 6. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. We're going to unpack that idea some more now. He says in verse 13, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Boy, there's a verse for you. Galatians 5.13 For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. It's not about you. It is about the other. It's not about what you have the right or the freedom to do. It is about your God-given responsibility to the other. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Verse 14. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, where did Paul come up with this? Oh, wait, Jesus said it. And he was quoting from the Old Testament. Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what Christianity looks like lived out? It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. It looks like focusing on your neighbor instead of focusing on you. When you make yourself the most important person in the room, you missed it. When you make the other people in the room more important than you, then you're catching on. Verse 15, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Wow, where'd that come from? Well, very simply, he's talking to the church at Galatia. And there were these divisions brought in to the church by these false teachers and, frankly, by the sinful nature, the fallen nature that has been redeemed, but they still struggle with sin 
of the people there trying to live out their freedom in Christ. And the the argument back to Paul when he's uh, talking about it is through freedom in Christ, not through the law, slavery to the law. You know, there are those confronting him with, look, if I try to live out my freedom, then it's every man for himself. It's going to, you know, that's a slippery slope of moral decline there. And Paul's going, no, 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 there's something else at work here. There's the spirit of God that gives us freedom, but that freedom calls us to love and to serve one another. The everything be summed up in that simple command, love your neighbor as yourself. But the contrast to it, but if you choose to live different, if you choose to live always biting and devouring one another, watch out. If you choose as a congregation to always be at each other's throats, to always be disagreeing and never pulling in the same direction, if you feel that your calling from God in this life is to be a contrarian, then you may need to get over yourself. If you find that every group of people you are in all have problems and none of them are yours, then you may be blind to some problems you're carrying around with you everywhere you go. We, as the body of Christ, should not and cannot be always biting and devouring at one another. We need to watch out. We need to beware because we may, as this verse says, in fact, destroy one another. And I can't see any way that that aligns with God's will and his word for his children to destroy each other. It's just not there. So there's some some stern words for us about love and that our freedom is a freedom to love and how that plays out. Now we pick up in verse 16. He says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So we've got this dichotomy going. We are still sinners. We still have a sinful nature. We will until we are given our glorified state. As long as we are in this life, we are being sanctified, moving towards glory, but we don't finish this sanctifying process until the end of this life. So it's a struggle. We have our sinful nature, and then we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us the Spirit of God leading us. Well, how do we deal with those two? And Paul says it very simply in 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's it. That's the solution. 
Because notice the rest of what he says. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. How do you follow God? You follow God. How do you let the Holy Spirit take control in your lives? You let the Holy Spirit take control in your life. You quit trying to do it. That starts looking a whole lot like law, if you're doing it. And law condemns us. Law declares us sinful. But God's grace, his spirit at work in us, that changes things. The sinful nature wants to do evil. I think we're all up to speed on that. Which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So you think, but everything I desire leads me to sin. No. If you are surrendering yourself to God's Holy Spirit, if you are letting the Spirit guide you, then the Spirit's going to give you desires that are in line with His nature and character and not in line with your sinful desires. God will redeem the desires of your heart when you surrender to his spirit. But if you're going to kick and fight against his spirit every step of the way, then don't start thinking that what your tendency is, what your desire is, what you're after is going to be in line with God's will. You cannot go through life going, God, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do that. Now, why aren't you blessing me? It doesn't work that way. Why would God bless your disobedience? Why would God bless your rebellion against him, your resistance to him in your life? Surrender. Again, I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. So he points out that the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Well, that verse goes on. He says, these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Ah, there's the catch. Yeah, there is always this back and forth. And as the Spirit gives us desires that please God, our sinful nature gives us desires that are in rebellion to God. And there's the challenge. But he goes on in verse 18, but when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law or to the law of Moses. What does that mean? It means when we are being led by the Spirit, when we are being empowered by the Spirit, when we have surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God, in our lives, and he has given us new desires, there is still this battle between the old sinful desires and the new desires given to us by God through his spirit. But when we allow ourselves to be directed by the spirit, we're not under obligation to our old sinful desires, the ones that are trapped under the law. We have new life in Christ. It makes all the difference. Now in verse 19, 
Paul says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And he gives us a list here. This is by no means an exhaustive list of what it looks like to follow our sinful nature. But hear him out, because he's about to give us a different list following this that, oddly enough, is, well, maybe not oddly enough, is the exact opposite. Listen to what he says. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to start at the end and work my way backwards as we go through this passage, because I need to deal with that will not inherit the kingdom of God. I have had people come to me and go, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm trying to trying to battle alcoholism. I've, I've been through recovery, but occasionally I fall off the wagon. So, you know, I'm guilty of drunkenness. So there's no way I can inherit the kingdom of God. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not understanding the text. The way I phrase this most often to people is this. The problem isn't that you struggle with sin. The problem is when you start embracing it and not struggling. When you are no longer listening, if you will, in light of the passages we just read, to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you different desires, and all you hear is your sinful self. And that's what you go with every time. Because then you have a God in your life, but it's not Christ. What he is giving here is a description of what it looks like to not be a believer. You go, well, I know non-believers that don't fit most of this. You know, uh, frankly, I know very few lost people that practice sorcery. And some of them are really nice people. They're not real hostile. And, you know, I even know some lost people that that aren't just sexually immoral, sinful, use a biblical term here, reprobates, um, that, that are actually pretty cool people and, and pretty solid. So they have no life in the kingdom of God? No, they're lost. They have the potential of coming to know Christ and the invitation is open and you should be working to bring them in. But as Paul is talking to the Galatian church, what he lists off is who they were. They lived by their sinful nature. Many of them worshiped, well, actually all of them worshiped pagan gods. And in worshiping those pagan gods, the most of them were fertility gods and well, sex was a big part of worship. When you went down to the temple to make your offering to the priest or priestess and worship that God for the favor of crops that produce or herds that are more fruitful, um, well, 
those priests or priestesses were temple prostitutes, and part of your act of worship was, well, sex. So, you know, got to understand, it was part of their life, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, um, parties, orgies. I mean, it was Rome. This is all the seedy underbelly of Rome, if you will. Idolatry. Everything was idolatry. Uh, part of the practice of idolatry did involve elements of, of what we would call sorcery. Um, there was hostility there. There was hostility towards God. There was hostility towards each other. There was a pettiness, this quarreling. quarreling. Um, there was jealousy. Uh, and this is a... a, a not a healthy jealousy, not a jealousy that guards a relationship. This is a jealousy that I want what they have. I I hate them because they have what I want and I don't. You know, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties. These are all indicative of a life that is lived in servitude to the desire, the sinful desires of the flesh and not listening to the spirit. And because it is a life that is indicative of that condition of the heart, Paul says, what does he say? Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they do not live by the spirit. Now, verse 22, things shift a little bit, but the Holy Spirit, so that was the effects of a life lived in servitude to the sinful nature. I mean, it even starts out in verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear, and then all the rest of that. Then the other side of it, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. In other words, the results of living our lives to follow the desires of the Holy Spirit looks like this. Love, as opposed to sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, but actual love. Joy, this joy that is rooted in relationship with Christ and is not contingent on circumstance. Peace, peace with God. When we have peace with God, we have a foundation for having peace with the people around us. We can be patient, kind. We can be peacemakers, not quarrelsome. So, love, joy, peace, patience. Here again, goes back to being rooted in peace, showing love. Kindness. Kindness is actually a word there that as you unpack its meaning in the Greek, involves strength under control. It doesn't mean weakness, meekness. It means strength directed. And often directed in the idea with kindness is the idea of generosity. That from a position of strength, you give. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is what it looks like when our lives are surrendered to the desires of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 through 21 is what it looks like when our lives are lived to follow the desires of our sinful nature. And Paul says these two natures are battling in us. 
He says back in verse 17, these forces are constantly fighting each other so that we're not free to carry out our good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of the law, the law of Moses. So again, in light of that, verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. There's no law in the laws of Moses. And here he is talking about law versus grace. He's going, you know, if we do these things that are following the Holy Spirit, we actually achieve the law. We start living out a life that is not contrary to the law, but doesn't place its trust in the law. It's still salvation by grace through faith in Christ and not of works. I know that's from Ephesians, but it's still true. And then he goes on, picking up in verse 24. All right, 24 reads like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another, or be jealous of one another. Again, he's drawing that contrast. He's saying, look, how do we deal with those old passions, that those desires of our sinful nature? They're still there. What do we do with them? He says, very, very bluntly, we nail them to the cross of Christ. Why? Because the penalty for following all that was paid for on the cross of Christ. So, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading. Again, not the law, the Spirit. Let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And then 26 is just a quick reminder of what that doesn't look like. If we're following the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives, then we're not going to become conceited. It's not about us. It's not, look how great I am. It's, let's look at my life and how well I'm following Christ. And you can look at your life and how well you're following Christ. Because Christ becomes the yardstick, the measure for us, not each other. It's never a comparison about each other. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another. I'm reminded recently of a story I heard on the news of these boys that, you know, imagination's a great thing. And, and I love superhero stories. And, and yeah, I have some old Spider-Man comic books. You know, I'll, I'll admit it. Excuse me, graphic novels. But um, these boys found a Black Widow spider and they thought it looked cool. And they started poking it with a stick 
to see if they could get it to bite them because they thought they would become Spider-Man. Or Spider-Boys, I guess, in this case. Instead, they wound up being hospital patients for a week or two. They did survive and learned an important life lesson. (laughs) But what were they doing? They were provoking a spider. They were poking it with a stick. Why? Well, because they thought they would gain something from it. But do you realize, even as believers, when we start becoming conceited, when we start playing that comparison game where we compare our lives to anything other than Christ, that we can fall into the tendency of provoking one another. And this isn't a spurring each other on to good works kind of provoking. This is a, I'm going to get under their skin, I'm going to annoy them, I'm going to set them off kind of provoking. That is not what it looks like to follow Christ. Your fellow believers are not spiders that you try to poke with a stick. Don't provoke them. That's not what love looks like. And our living out our faith in Christ should look like love. So let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Here again, that's jealousy like we were talking about earlier. That's that jealousy that that resents what you have because it's what I want. That makes it all about me, doesn't it? And yet we are called again. Let me turn the page back and read that verse. In 5.13... For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. If I had to pick a verse that encapsulated what it is to live out what we find in the book of Galatians... I think I'd pick 513. Now, there's more discussion in the book of Galatians than that. But if you're saying, okay, as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Christ, what can I learn from Galatians to live in my life now? Well, first off, be on guard against those false teachers, the ones that come in and say it's Jesus and this list of law. Avoid falling into the trap of coming up with your own list of the law or having a God that is so inadequate because you cover everything by your list and then he just covers the gaps, you know. God will take care of the rest after I've done everything I can. Understand you have two natures. You have a fallen sinful nature and you have the Holy Spirit in your life. And they are both giving you desires. You should surrender to only one of them, and the other one needs to be nailed to the cross of Christ. And all of that living out our freedom in Christ, saved by the Spirit, made right with God by His grace, looks like love in our lives. It has to. And if what we've got in our lives isn't love and doesn't look like love, 
then we may not have the relationship with God we think we do. That may be indicative that we're surrendering more to the sinful nature and not the Holy Spirit. So be on guard, just as Paul warned the Galatian church to be on guard. But live the freedom found in Christ and let that freedom permeate your life as you live out the Holy Spirit by loving. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Follow the list of what the Spirit looks like, the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives, not the fruit of what our sinful nature produces. I hope you found this chapter challenging, because it is. I hope you found it encouraging, because it is. And I hope you'll join us next week as we round out our study of the book of Galatians by delving into the sixth chapter of Galatians and finishing part of Paul's discussion about our freedom in Christ and freedom that is found in the gospel. Well, let's turn to Christ in prayer as we close our time together today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we study your word, your spirit convicts us. And Lord, as there is a struggle going on in each of our lives, the struggle between our sinful nature and your spirit at work in us, Lord, help us to surrender even more to your spirit. Help us to cling to you. Help us to hold tight. That it would all be about you. And that as we're clinging to you and we look around and see others, that we would respond to each of them out of love. Because we found our peace in you. Help us to reject the desires of our sinful nature. To understand those are part of the old self that has been nailed to the cross and died with Christ. That we are the new self that rose with him. Because our sins are paid for. And we are free. Lord, we thank you for this awesome gift. Help us to live it out. It is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.